Rick Stevens, financial advisor with FRS Financial Group, securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced in this program are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. For more detailed information regarding any of the topics discussed on today's show, please call 719-500-8700. This is Money Matters, presented by FRS Financial. Here's your host, Rick Stevens. Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of Money Matters presented by FRS Financial Group. I am your host, Rick Stevens, and remember that this is your show. If you've got those questions that you would like to have answered, if there's a topic you'd like to hear on a future episode of Money Matters, feel free to give me a call at 719-500-8700. You can also shoot me an email, rstevens at frsfinancialgroup.com or simply go to the website, frsfinancialgroup.com. Go to that contact tab up in the top right corner. Send us that message. Send us the question, the topic you'd like to hear because we would love to hear from you. Well, folks, this week on Money Matters, we are in studio as always with Andrew Rogers. Andrew, it's chilly outside. It is. It's almost like it happens every week around the same time. It's crazy. Like, like there's a weather pattern or, yeah. or something we're dealing with here. It's it's crazy that way. Folks, also with us in studio this week is Kyle Fisk with the Fisk team at Pintrust Mortgage because I get in trouble for saying Fisk Group, right? Fisk team, whatever. Mm-hmm. Call us whatever name you want. That's what they do. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We're glad you guys are here and thanks for having us back. Uh, Awesome. I do have to, uh, as always, give that uh, disclosure that LPL Financial and FRS Financial do not endorse the guests that are here with us on Money Matters. We're still happy to have you anyway, Kyle, and and I know there's like 18 minutes of of, uh, disclaimer you've got to give to. That's right. Welcome to one of the most highly regulated industries in the world, the mortgage (laughs) business. All material presented is for educational purposes and is not an advertisement to extend credit. Not all applicants are eligible for loan products offered. All loan programs, terms, and conditions, including interest rates, especially today, are subject (laughs) to change without notice. I'm Kyle with the Fisk team at Pentrust Mortgage Group. NMLS number 1949057, FiskMortgage.com. Thanks well, for tuning in, everybody. Absolutely. We'll see you again next week. <laughs> uh, so, so, Kyle, we, we've done this you know, often throughout the, the last year because there have been some things happening in, in the interest rate world for, for quite a while now. Well, the last couple of years have certainly seen a lot of volatility and unpredictability. And when I was here in January, things looked very different landscape than where we're sitting today as we record this on March 1st. Uh, We saw a big reversal in the bond market in the month of February. We're going to talk a lot about that here in our first segment of what's going on. But lots of unpredictability, lots of volatility, and a higher perception of something we're going to talk a lot about today, and that's risk. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those crazy things, right? The the Fed gets numbers and and you know, both from the from the investment world side as well as the the mortgage world side, we're expecting to see numbers that that tell us a particular story and then they tell us a little something different and then the Fed kind of makes I don't know if I want to call it a full pivot because you know, pivot is that uh, buzzword out there, right? The pivot and the pause. 
but but we've seen some some things that came out really at the beginning of February where the the Fed made some pretty pretty interesting adjustments I guess I should say to their outlook to what they were doing right we we were expecting you know coming into this year maybe one uh 50 basis point or half a percent increase and another quarter percent or 25 basis point increase and that's not exactly what what happened based on the data well let's back up a little bit because back in january we did see a 25 basis point hike right and what we saw now that was the rate hike as expected mm-hmm. and mortgage rates actually came down in january right uh, now that's a mystifying d- dynamic that does deserve a little bit of explanation <laughs> right mm-hmm. two important points one it was as expected meaning the market had already uh, priced it in, was fully able to prepare for that in advance. Now, a portion of this market that we're talking about in question is that of mortgage-backed securities. And these are basically bonds that are guaranteed by pools of mortgage loans. And that's really what determines a day-to-day mortgage rate movement above all else. And second, we're talking about the federal funds rate. We've talked about this before, but it bears worth yes. repeating. Now, this is the target range for the shortest-term lending amount among large financial institutions. Think of it like the Fed setting the rate of return on a savings account. The higher it is, the more banks will pay to park money there, and the higher rates they must charge other banks and clients to borrow money. So now the Fed fund rate might correlate with mortgage rates over very long-term horizons, but there can be weeks and even months where they move in in opposite directions. Um, And that's because, of course, mortgages last years upon years. We're talking about a federal fund rate that's borrowing money for 24 hours. Now, all of that to say is that right after that 25 basis point hike, the bond market actually had a great couple of days, and we actually saw really big improvements in January in mortgage rates, but not so much in February. Right, right. And uh, that's one of those things where... Yes, there were some, uh, shall we call them, unexpected numbers that that came out uh, to the Fed, right? And these are these are things that they they're not just given to the Fed, right? These are numbers that are released to the public as a whole. But we we think about them because they're part of the data that the Federal Reserve uses to determine what those overnight rates are then going to be. Well, and in January, Chairman Powell actually was very somewhat cautiously optimistic, saying maybe we're getting on top of this inflation problem. Maybe we're going to start seeing unemployment go up. And essentially said we're going to let the data drive our decisions. And if we start to see a more stagnant economy, if these economic indicators that we look at, primarily inflation and unemployment as two of the really big mm-hmm. indicators. If those numbers continue to go higher unemployment, lower inflation, then maybe we'll get to a point where we can pause these Fed rate hikes or and kind of wait and see what happens. However, <laughs> there's always two, a however. <laughs> two weeks after all of this happens, on February 3rd, we get a jobs report. Now, again, a lot of this goes to what did we expect? What did we already price in? Did we meet expectations or did we not? And when we don't meet expectations, we see volatility in the marketplace. So the expectation for the jobs report was the creation of about 180,000 180, jobs in the marketplace. That number came out 
plus 517,000, about four times bigger of a number, and it rattled the bond and stock market. We saw on that day, the stock market lose about 700 points. We saw mortgage-backed securities go up about 80 basis points, and we saw the 10-year Treasury yield, one of the best indicators of mortgage rates, increase 14 basis points, which may not sound like a lot to the average consumer, (laughs) but a 14, a double-digit basis point movement in the 10-year treasury yield is almost unheard of. It was one of the largest yield moves in over three years. Yeah, and and that's one of those those things where, you know, as we are watching these pieces unfold in the market in real time, uh, that that a lot of folks really didn't anticipate, especially when you're talking about that that jobs report and you would think well, hey, there, we created yeah. four times as many jobs as, as we were expecting. That's a good thing, right? But did we? Right. So there's some really important data here. And and not to get too much in the weeds, but this is really important. And a big part of this, especially in the trading world today, one of the things that we're seeing that's different than from 10 years ago is so much more of our trading is being driven by computers. Mm-hmm. This is all automatically being done. The buys and sells are simply based on algorithms baked in, and they are looking at that top-line number. So that top-line number was 517,000 jobs. Now, there are actually two different reports within this jobs report. One of them is driven by businesses and it's based on data collected from them and then a bit a lot of estimating and a lot of modeling. The second survey is actually people calling households and saying, "Do you have a job?" right? And did you get a new job this month? And so that data, you know, if we're going to hang our hat on data, all of these models and estimates, et cetera, let's be honest, there are layers and layers <laughs> of expectations, of biases, of different things that they want to show. I mean, let's be honest. So this 517,000 new jobs that were created lowered, quote unquote, lowered unemployment from 3.5 to 3.4, the lowest unemployment rate since 1969. But can that also account for people just not filing for unemployment claims as well, too, and skewing those numbers? Well, because it's you look at both the number of jobs created and the number of people in the workforce, mm-hmm. right? So that does play into it. But you can often – let's be – here, so at the end of the day, these numbers were 100% skewed, and we're going to talk about that in a couple of minutes. So, not to make this too political, and both sides of the aisle do this. They they doctor the data to fit their narrative, and there's no surprise that three business days after this jobs report came out, President Biden had the State of the Union address and stood up there and said, "We have the lowest unemployment in 40 years." Now, again, not to make it too political, but don't think that politics don't play a part of this. And the other side does it, too. This is just the group that happens to be running the Bureau of Labor Statistics right now and, you know, fitting that narrative. If you actually look underneath the hood, a couple of really interesting points. One, 70 percent of the jobs that were created are part-time jobs. And an enormous percentage of those jobs were second or third jobs, Mm -hmm. meaning I'm working somewhere maybe i'm getting less hours because you know things are slowing down in the economy so i go get a second job to supplement my income well that counts as quote unquote job creation but if i'm losing hours somewhere and that's forcing me to get a second job are we really creating economic activity yeah or you know the current situation is still you know so difficult for the everyman that they're having to get you know side hustles and things like that that side hustle is then being skewed as new job creation and trying to paint a positive picture. And really, these are just people trying, trying to buy a $9 carton of eggs. They're trying to make ends meet. Yeah. They're getting a second job to do that. And we're now counting that as we're, we're 
We're winning. Touting that yeah. as the, econ- the economy is improving. So if you look at the raw data, because here's the thing. All of mm-hmm. these numbers get population and seasonally adjusted. So there's raw data, and then there's the calculation and the top-line number. The raw data tells us that there were actually, in the in December, these were December's numbers we were talking about, yeah. that there were 2.5 million jobs lost okay. in in our national economy. And if you read the news, like we're reading about layoffs, we're reading about some of these large companies mm-hmm. laying off people and going through that process. So it stands to reason and we can we can manipulate that data for only so long. So a really important number or date to keep on your calendar is March 10th, which is going to be the next jobs report. And I'll be very curious to see if there's a bit of a well, maybe it's not as strong as we thought it was reaction now that we are past a very important political moment. And will those numbers come back to a little bit more of reality? Because they really did disguise within that jobs. If you dig down into it, we absolutely lost jobs. In fact, one another really good indicator um, is ADP. And this is not ADP yes. is the largest payroll provider in the world. And they handle, I mean, millions upon millions of paychecks. Again, if we're going to hang our hat on data, do we want to hang it on a bureaucracy that's creating numbers and adjusting them and modeling them, or do we want to look at raw data? And the raw data says, well, how many paychecks were actually cut? Yeah. Right? They increased payrolls, ADP, by 140,000 jobs, which is a lot closer in line with what that expected 180 was supposed to be. So when you look at some of these real data points, it actually suggests that the economy isn't as strong as, as we think it is, and unemployment isn't as strong or as low as they're saying it is. And we'll talk more in following segments about how, what's the effect if inflation is actually coming down and if unemployment is actually going up, what will that mean for the market? Savings, stocks, bonds, and interest rates. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of those other things that uh, every time there's a new jobs report that comes out, oftentimes buried in there is the update to the previous jobs report. Oh, because we can adjust up to two reports behind and say, oh, we got new data. Our model now suggests something different. So that will be a piece of that March and April jobs report will be to say, do they go back and update this yeah. number that was super rosy. We'll see. Indeed. Indeed. Well, folks, we are up against that first break in today's show. When we come back, yeah, we're still going to be talking a little bit more data. We're going to be talking about that economy, what it really looks like, these numbers that that you keep hearing all the time. What do they really mean, not only in the big picture, but to us individually as well? Stick around. We will be right back. Does stock market volatility have you wondering which way is up? Do the talking heads and doomsayers have you wondering if this really is the end? If you want straight answers from an advisor who isn't just trying to sell you something, call FRS Financial Group at 719-500-8700 to schedule your complimentary appointment today. And remember to tune into Money Matters presented by FRS Financial Group here on KRDO, Saturday mornings at 9 and Sunday at noon. Products and services offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome back to Money Matters here on KRDO. I'm Andrew Rogers along with Rick Stevens, joined by Kyle Fisk of the Fisk team at Pentrust Mortgage. You know, guys, in the middle of the break, even before the show, as we were kind of going over the show notes up in the lobby, there was a lot of talk, and you guys got real giddy, if I can be honest, (laughs) about inverted yields. And I still, outside of 
Top Gun. I get that kind of inversion <laughs> in international communications, but this whole conversation about inverted yields is still right over my head. And what's going on with that? And what does that mean for the everyday guy? I think that's a great question. And I think it's really important to dive in and unpack it. And it is a little technical and it's a little geekish, but it does actually have a practical just a, impact. Just a little. Just a little <laughs> just bit. A little, just a little yeah, bit. Right. So let me ask you, Andrew, okay. when you when you take your money to invest with Rick, right? And you you're okay. he's your financial advisor. What's the number one thing you are concerned about as an investor when you're taking money and investing it? What's the number one thing you're thinking about? What's going to happen to it and if it's going to grow or shrink? And if it's going to grow or shrink goes to what, Rick, in terms of what, like, what am I measuring of what's my return versus my? It's the great big other R word, not the recession word, but it is the risk Word. It's the word risk. So mm-hmm. that's a huge component here when we talk about yields is we're really looking at what's the risk of my money. So a yield curve is generally, think about it like uh, climbing a mountain. It's low on the left and okay. climbs up and to the right. And the farther we get to the right, it flattens out a little bit, becomes mm-hmm. more of a plateau. So think of a mountainscape, right? Okay. That would be your typical yield curve. And what we're measuring is... The time versus our return on our investment. So typically, if I was going to give you $100, Andrew, okay. and I said, I'm going to give you this, uh, you're going to give me $100, okay? I'm going to get $100. Right, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to trust this a little Let's bit less this. already. Let's change this. I don't want to give you $100. Here. How about you give me Am $100? Am I going to have to like follow the queen next? Okay. Or, I mean, what's going on? <laughs> All right. So you give me $100, okay. and you have two choices. I can give you back your $100 in two years or in 10 years. Okay. And if I'm going to keep your money for the longer, and you can choose, if I if I keep the money for two years, I give you back $120. But okay. if I keep the money for 10 years, I give you back $180. Okay. Right? So what is that? What are we measuring there in terms of what, what I'm giving, what you're getting as far for as your that, 100 bucks? As far as that projected growth rate and risk over you know that two to 10 year period. Well, and, and so would you rather give me money for two years or 10? Well, at that point, I'm getting 20% in 10 years versus not as much of a return going off of uh, the longer term. So the bottom line is the longer you give me the money, Mm -hmm. the more I have to give you to keep your money for a longer period of time, right? Which is why typically long-term money costs more than short-term money because there's increased risk, right? There's increased risk over time and the time value of money. So typically, I'm going to get a better return on my investment the longer I invest the money. So let's take this to the bond market. We have 10-year bonds, two-year bonds. We have three-month bonds, but let's talk right, about our 10-year right. and okay. our two-year, right? Because those are the ones we talk about as the inverted part right. in that well, yield curve. They're all in. Actually, the three-month is even more inverted, but yes. let's just yes, stay with is. 10 and yes. two. We don't want to confuse the yeah. Yeah. We don't want to confuse I'm the already getting a little confused. Okay. Okay. <laughs> all right. So if so, the, there's 10-year treasury yields okay. and there's two-year treasury yields, meaning I'm going to give the money, I'm going to loan my money to the federal government for 10 years or two years. Now, typically- I would make more money on the 10-year. The long I've given them the money for 10 years, I should get a larger return on that. Mm-hmm. This morning, I pulled the numbers. The 10-year treasury yield this morning was 3.99. Okay. The two-year treasury is 4.88, almost a full percentage point higher, meaning I'm making more money in the short term than the long term. That is the definition of an inverted yield curve. Okay. So our curve doesn't look like a mountain. It looks like a valley. Okay, so our line is going the other way. Now, it's upside down. It's backwards. It doesn't make sense, and it's not supposed to because it doesn't follow 
normal economic sense that the longer I keep the money, the more I'm going to have to pay for it. So what are we really measuring when we have an inverted yield curve? It's that there is a higher perception of immediate risk, volatility, and unpredictability in the marketplace in the next three months, six months, two years. And therefore, my money is not safe in a two-year period, so I'm going to take my money out of two-year treasuries. I'm going to move my money to 10-year treasuries. And when I put more, that means there's more demand for 10-year treasuries, mm -hmm. okay? And that is going to... Uh, bring down, so we're going to have lower yields on that 10-year treasury than we are on the two-year treasury. And that's the definition of an inverted yield curve. So the real question is, what does that mean for everyday man? Yeah. Why does that matter? Yeah. And the, the big part about that, then, as we're looking at that from that risk perspective, is... If we want less risk, because especially folks who are in those, we're almost ready to retire or we're in those retirement years, they want something that is not going to make their money look like, uh, you know, one of the giant roller coasters uh, up at uh, Elitch Gardens. They want something that looks more like that kiddie coaster. There might be a little up, a little down, but pretty smooth along the way, which means when we're looking at the fixed income side of one of those portfolios, we actually need to look more to the longer duration than those short-term high-yield pieces because those are the ones that are going to have that, that high volatility on the up and the down. And it's the down that we're trying to protect. That's exactly right. So, the, so your long-term investors, Andrew, are mm -hmm. now going to invest in longer-term bonds because of the uncertainty and risk surrounding the market in the near term. Now, we also see then people leaving the stock market for the same reason volatility and unpredictability. So I'd rather lock in a 10-year yield on my money and lose the uncertainty, minimize my risk that that particular stock or mutual fund could lose 30% this year. And how long is this supposed to be, you know, obviously not supposed to be happening at all, kind of say that, that it, you mentioned this is very abnormal, but it sounds like as well that we've had a number of discussions about inverted yields, and is that normal to have such a prolonged time of this kind of predictable unpredictability or predictable instability? So we've been inverted for about a year now, maybe just over a year, and we were super flat. So the other side of this is you can have a very flat yield curve where the yields of a two-year and a 10-year are very similar. And again, that goes to uncertainty. We're not mm -hmm. sure which way are we mm -hmm. going. Are we going towards economic expansion? Are we going towards economic contraction? I'm not sure. So I'm going to play both sides of the fence, and that results in a very flat curve. So we actually saw a flat curve start back in August of 2019. So it has been a prolonged period of either a flat or inverted yield curve. Rick, you saw some data that seems to suggest some economic analysts wouldn't be surprised to see this go on for quite a relatively long period relative to the way the markets work. Right. And that's uh, that was actually a call that I was on last week uh, with, with an analyst and, and their whole thought process. And this is not just a... Uh, uh, what we would call an equities firm, trying to throw out some ideas in the fixed income market. This is a firm that really does very well in the fixed income world with with their with their different uh, mutual funds. And their analyst said that they would not be surprised to see that inversion not just remain through the end of this year, but could be up to 24 months. Now, it wasn't a we expect it, but it's I wouldn't be surprised if this happens. And again, it goes to the uncertainty. So, Andrew, let's talk about three reasons okay. why this matters to you, the everyday man. All what right. are the effects of this? Now, remember, yield curves don't actually 
cause anything. Yield curves are an indicator. Yield curves are a thermometer okay. that say I have a fever. Yeah. So it doesn't actually tell me. So what why is it indicating? Because just like you mentioned, you know, in the market instability, we know that the market itself is not the economy. Again, just that kind of barometer. Similar with these yield curves. So what is this maybe pointing towards that what's wrong and what do we need to look at? And again, what's this going to mean at the end of the day? Yeah, for people looking to buy or sell a home, interest rates, I mean, that's where the rubber meets the road of what's the impact on this. Impact number one, a high degree of volatility and uncertainty and unpredictability. We saw interest rates come down dramatically in January. We were down to 6%, maybe even high fives. As of mm-hmm. today, we are well back over 7 in less than a three-and-a-half-week period. Now, those types of swings are a bit unusual. We certainly yeah. see mortgage rates go up and down every day, but that level of volatility, that level of a swing is indicative of just a lot of volatility in the marketplace. And so part of it, I think, is just helping consumers manage those expectations. Like the fact that you got a quote for a mortgage last week today means nothing, right? Yeah. And just recognize that, that there's a high degree of volatility in the marketplace. Number two... Um, adjustable rate mortgages pretty much don't exist for this reason because of all the volatility in short-term financing. Why would I, as a bank or a lender, want to give you a rate that might change if there's so much uncertainty about what the next two or three or five years are going to look like in the economy? And so uh, adjustable rate mortgages, which got a bad rap 10 or 15 years ago Mm -hmm, because we misused mm -hmm. them and abused them, they have their place in a good loan portfolio, but they are essentially non-existent because at par today, an adjustable rate mortgage is actually more expensive than a 30-year fixed mortgage. Uh, The third effect of an inverted yield curve is that it has correctly predicted the last 10 recessions. And what we know about recessionary periods over the history of the modern mortgage in the last 70 years is that during recessionary periods, long-term interest rates, including mortgage rates, come down. So what would I expect? That over the next 6 to 12 to 24 months, we are going to see interest rates be lower than today. How does that help the consumer? Well, should I buy down my rate? Not if you're going to refinance in nine months. Mm -hmm. It brings into the avenue things like temporary buy-downs, which is a uh, legal way for a seller concession to pay and subsidize a portion of my principal and interest payment for the first one to three years, depending on how it's structured. And so there all of a sudden are new tools that are more effective in this type of an environment in terms of how we're advising clients, how do you structure a mortgage? You know, is it still a good time to buy? Absolutely. But the way we're setting up people's financing might look a little different because of this barometer we have with this inverted curve. Okay. Does that help? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, now one of the things that we've talked about previously uh, on on here, Kyle, is that uh, there, there have been a couple of times where you've been on where the 15-year actually had a higher rate than the 30, right? And, and we, we've seen, you know, craziness happen in the rate world. Where do the 15 and 30 stand in, in, in relative uh, proximity to one another these days? So the 15-year is still a long-term, right? Relative to our three- or six-month mm-hmm. treasury yields or even our two-year treasury yields, 15-year is still considered a long-term investment. Right. Right. So we have seen not as much big impact on the adjustable rate mortgages, not as much of an impact on 
15-year, 20-year, 30-year fixed-rate mortgages. So today, you can still get a better deal on a 15-year fixed-rate mortgage than you can on a 30. I ran some numbers this morning. Obviously, everybody's situation is different. We've talked about 26 different factors going right. into determining mm-hmm. somebody's interest rate. But at a generic scenario, 80% loan-to-value, meaning a 20% down payment, and a middle-of-the-range credit score on a four dollars or $500,000 loan, you're probably at par, not buying down your rate, looking on a 30-year today, somewhere in the low to mid-7s. Now, most people are buying down rate in some way, shape, or form, and a couple of discount points can actually get you down on a 30-year into about 6.5. And, okay. and on a 15-year, at par, no buy-down, you're sitting about 6.9. So about a half-to-quarter point spread. Now, it's a little tighter. Right. Right? Normally, you might see a bigger distinction between those two, but that inverted yield curve on the longer end of the spectrum as we go out in time ends up flattening it out. So what we are seeing is a little bit more of a flatness between 30 and 15. There's not as good of a deal going to 15 as there might be in a different yield curve environment. So does that mean you shouldn't get a 15? No, it just means it's not as good of a deal as it maybe was. And so maybe you're like, eh, it's not worth that quarter or half point in interest rate savings. So go ahead and give me the 30-year and that smaller monthly payment Right, Those are some of the practical outcomes that we see in this type of flattened or inverted rate environment when we're looking at the 15- and 30-year mortgages. And, and ultimately, what that, what that gets back to is the, the whole marry the house, date the rate sort of scenario where, you know, if I'm buying today, 30 years uh, is probably on that lower end, my better monthly cost, but in a year, two years, three years, I might be able to get into that 15 with the same with the same monthly cost. And we can talk about a big thing on the servicing spread of these basis points and what that means for what the analysts and experts are predicting is the future of interest rates over the short term. We'll get into that in the next segment. Awesome. Stick around, everybody. We will be right back. Money affects each of us in different ways. Sometimes it's a source of stress and fear. Sometimes it's a source of comfort and security. Whatever your perspective, it's always good to get a second set of eyes on your finances to help serve as a guide. If you are looking for that guidance, call FRS Financial Group at 719-500-8700 to schedule your complimentary appointment. And remember to tune into Money Matters presented by FRS Financial Group here on KRDO, Saturday mornings at 9 and Sunday at noon. Products and services offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Well, folks, thanks for sticking with us through that break. Rick Stevens here with you on Money Matters, presented by FRS Financial Group. In studio with me today, Andrew Rogers and Kyle Fisk from Pintrust Mortgage. Kyle, we've been talking about the the 30-year mortgage rates, 15-year rates, uh, the the two-year and 10-year treasuries, and and there's there's a piece where we're comparing the 10-year treasury to that 30-year mortgage. There there's a spot where where they are, you know, for lack of a better term, quote unquote, normally at. But we're not there right now, are we? Not even close. So yeah, there's a relationship. And the 10-year treasury, if you're going to watch one thing in relation to mortgage rates, watch the 10-year treasury yield. Put that in your little stock ticker. Mm-hmm. Watch that number as yields go up. Interest rates go up as yields go down. Interest rates go down. That's probably the best one predictor you can look at. Now, normally, 
Over the last 40 years of mortgages, we've tracked this. There's generally a 200 basis point or two percentage points, Andrew. Okay. Let's, let's not talk basis points. I know that confuses <laughs> the everyman. What All the right. heck's a basis it, point? It, especially two, in a Detroit hat. Exactly. It's so, a percentage. So I, I figured that out. Two percentage point difference between the 10-year treasury and the mm-hmm. normal interest rate. Yeah. So we talked about how the 10-year treasury today is right at four. So, uh, Andrew, what should mortgage rates be if we're at four? Six, but they not be at six. seven, seven, seven and, and a half, half. that you mentioned. So why is there that additional 150 basis points Well, well versus done. what we've traditionally <laughs> looked at and built things upon? Yeah, that really big spread is the difference in servicing costs. So all loans in America, 99% of loans in America are sold on the secondary market. They're mm-hmm. bundled into mortgage-backed securities and sold to investors. And so when someone says, well, my mortgage got sold, no, what they really mean is I got a new servicer assigned. So a servicer gets the right to service the mortgage and they pay, mm-hmm. and they're going to charge for that right to be able to collect the, the uh, principal and interest payment, collect any late fees, mm-hmm. manage the mortgage. Now, Part of the way they get paid is the interest rate on that mortgage. Yeah. So the longer that mortgage is kept, the more money they make. Well, here's what the servicers are betting on. They're looking at these rates and saying, this isn't a five-year mortgage. This is a one-year or 18-month or 24-month mortgage. So we're going to charge more money up front to service this loan. So right now, the bigger spread of that extra 150 basis Mm -hmm. points is almost all in higher servicing costs. Because what the expectation is, the market is betting that all of the loans we're doing right now at six and a half, seven, seven and a half percent interest Mm -hmm. rates are all going to refinance in the relative short term, meaning 12 to 24 months. And as interest rates come back down, that paper that they're servicing goes away. So they won't make as much money over the long term. So they have to make more money up front. Yeah, they got to get their piece of the pie while the game's going. And so as interest rates come down, Mm -hmm. that spread will collapse back down. And so if we could see the 10-year treasury get back down to, say, somewhere around three, Mm -hmm. we should see interest rates not just fall a little bit, but they could fall all the way back to closer to five and get back to that 2% spread between the 10-year and interest rates. And so as interest rates and inflation come down, it's actually going to have a bigger effect on our interest rates, and we could see them come down quite a bit. And and even in that world, right, if the 10-year comes down to three, interest rates on those 30-year mortgages come down to five, it it's actually normal for, for rates to have been in that five range really for the last 30 years, right? Four to six would be probably a range of an interest rate that would be considered fairly normalized and fairly healthy in terms of what the investor is getting on that versus what the consumer is getting, the idea of affordability of homes and all of that. But historically, even four to six is probably actually below the historical average over the last 70 years of the modern mortgage. So it's still probably a very good rate. But yes, I think the normalization of four to six is something we should expect. Yeah, we just got really spoiled with such historically low rates for so long. Artificially before, held yeah. rates due to a pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. Increased yeah. money supply, too much exactly. demand, not enough supply, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And 2.5% and 3% interest rates that we won't go back to barring another pandemic. That, I mean, that, I mean, spoiled with low rates kind of got us to the same position, <laughs> but yeah. Spoiled. Okay, yeah. got it. Got it. Uh, got it. Uh, now, now, kind of going from that, that lower rate to the higher rate environment, uh, some of those some of those numbers that that came out in the last week really looking at the housing market and how many houses have sold 
Um, obviously, what they'll do is, you know, just like even in the jobs world and in the unemployment world and in the inflation world, we take the last month, we extrapolate that over a full year. Here's what the expectation is. Um, the, the normal rate, if you will, on houses sold really in the last 10, 15 years is typically five to five and a half million homes across the country uh, being sold over the course of the, the last year. In 21 and 22, we know the housing market was on fire. We, we saw somewhere in that six to six and a half million homes being sold uh, at that point. But the data that came out seems to suggest that in 2023, we might be closer to four million homes being sold at this point, you know, through through the year. What in the world would have cooled the market that much? Is it just the rates? Or are there a myriad of other reasons? Because there are always 26 other reasons, right, that, that it might not be such a hot market overall. So a couple of things that are important to note when we look at the, the demand for housing, which is what we're talking about, right? right? This right. all comes back to supply and demand. We're talking mm-hmm. about, okay. It's like it's Economics 101 it's, it, or Almost something. like it's Econ 101. Um, we're really not that smart. It all comes back to the same principles over and over and over again. Um, when we look at the demand for housing, which is what you're referring to of this cool down or less homes being sold, a couple of interesting things to look at. One is exa- is existing homes versus new homes. Right. And another one is this idea of household formation. Because obviously, household formation drives the demand for housing. So your college kid moves out of the basement, buys a home with his buddy. Uh, somebody gets engaged, gets married, decides we don't want to live in an apartment anymore. Let's go ahead and buy our first house. Household formation is directly related to uh, demand for housing. Now, your typical household formation in America over the last several years has held steady of right around 1.7 million households created on an annualized basis. Over the last 12 months, that has been down to about 1.4. There is a delay in household formation happening right now. Now, that is pent-up future demand sitting on the sidelines. That is, unfortunately, your college kid or post-college kid staying in the basement longer than you wanted, not going out and buying a house. It's a couple deciding higher interest rates, et cetera, uncertainty Mm -hmm. in the marketplace, all this volatility will wait. So these people that are making choices not to create households directly leads to a lower demand for housing. But what we've seen historically You can only do it for so long. At some point, mom and dad are going to kick the kid out of the basement. So it's pent-up future demand. And so you actually see this lull in demand followed by everybody that was sitting on the sidelines coming back into the marketplace when either inventories go up and I have more supply and choice or interest rates come down and I've increased my affordability and I've increased my buying power. So if and when we see interest rates come down, if and when we see supply of homes go up, expect to see that pent-up demand on the sidelines flooding back into the marketplace across the board, and especially here in Colorado. But isn't it also true, especially here in Colorado, that one, you know, maybe subtle benefit of the interest rate market right now is that it is, you know, going back to that supply and demand thing where we're not seeing these rush to buy a home, these bidding wars, things like that, where we're seeing the list price get jumped up by twenty, thirty thousand dollars And it's actually taking the opposite where it's actually making it more um, affordable on the house price angle versus the 
interest rate. Back to what Rick said in the last segment of our little saying in my industry of you you marry the house and you date the rate. Mm -hmm. It actually leads to today being a great time to buy a home because, okay, you say, oh, my payment's a little higher because interest rates are up. Well, that's something that can change. Yeah. I got the house. I can change my payment down the road because right now there is way more opportunity for seller concessions or incentives from a builder. Right now, there's way less people in the marketplace competing for our houses. And while we still, we're talking, we're going to talk about housing supply here in a little while, while we certainly don't have enough supply, we have more supply than we did a year ago at this time. And so there is more choice. There's more opportunity. If you're a buyer or a consumer in today's market, you have a lot more control. You have a lot more choice. Choice, you can get a much better deal and get into a home right now. And so I think smart, savvy investors and consumers are buying right now. And you're seeing that with real estate investors. They're buying right now, right? And it's because mm-hmm. of that, some of those subtle changes in the market that you're talking about of what has changed over the last, you know, 12 or 24 months. Yeah. And one of those, one of those things that I have read in a number of different places uh, in terms of that supply side uh, of the market. Yes, there are supply chain issues and, you know, getting lumber from whatever forest we're taking it out of and getting all that milled and to the builders themselves. But we also see what used to be, you know, grandma, grandpa getting moved into a skilled nursing facility. A lot of boomers don't want to go into skilled nursing. They actually want that skilled nursing to come to their house So grandma and grandpa's house that would have been available 20, 30 years ago now isn't because they're staying in it longer, which means the existing home uh, supply is not coming online uh, quite as much as it used to before. What else are those things that are, yes, we've got a better supply in Colorado Springs now than we had 12 months ago. But what are those things that are really affecting that? Well, we're still sitting at only uh, earlier this week. We were we were at about seventeen hundred properties listed for sale on the Pikes Peak MLS. Now that's vacant land, condos, townhomes, single family, the works across the board for our entire region. Now that number was probably six or seven hundred at this point last year. So we've obviously increased, but a a healthy market for us is probably closer to three thousand or thirty five hundred units on that MLS. So we're still absolutely in a constrained supply environment demand for houses there's there's southern colorado still has too many people not enough homes fundamentally and that's going now there's a couple of things when we look at that one we haven't seen big price declines we've seen a little bit of moderation we're certainly seeing values not go up as quickly so we've seen some of that affordability moderate a little bit but we have not seen the someone who's sitting on the sidelines waiting for mass foreclosures mass short sales or a 20% right. price drop it's not happening and the lack of supply in the high demand in our area does keep a very safe floor on prices and that's a double edged sword if you're out looking in the market Buy now. You're not. There's no reason to sit around and wait. And you should also buy with confidence because I've heard some people say, "Well, I don't want to buy and then have a big price drop." That just simply doesn't seem or appear to be in the cards. And for those of us that do own real estate, we should be pretty confident that we're not seeing wholesale declines in values in Southern Colorado. There's again just too much demand, not enough supply to really keep a safe number on that floor of where pricing is going to be. Right. And a lot of that uh, not seeing the foreclosures, not seeing the short sales, a lot of that comes out of what happened back in 2007 and 8 and 9. 
and those lending rules that changed for better for better or for worse there were a lot of bad apples in our industry back in those days and if you could breathe you get a, you could get a mortgage and we gave a lot of mortgages to people that probably shouldn't have mm-hmm. had them and most of those foreclosures and short sales were from people that really didn't qualify to begin with it's harder today to get a mortgage than it's ever been before in the history of the American mortgage period the rules are tighter the guidelines are stronger the scrutiny is is more clear the way that we do this if you're getting qualified for a mortgage you can afford that payment and it we've and we've seen it whether we like all the regulation and compliance or not certainly as we look dodd frank and all the things that happened after 2010 um, right now in america less than two percent of all mortgages are either underwater or delinquent yeah that's just that's an enormous that's a, astronomically low percentage of people that aren't making their mm-hmm. mortgage payments, even in an environment of higher inflation and a, a stagnant economy and all these other factors. You know, the people that a year ago said, oh, watch out for the wave. That wave hasn't happened. I don't think we're going to see that wave. And it goes directly to, frankly, our buyers are just better qualified. We have more equity in our homes than we've had in a long, long time. Uh, homeowners are in a very good spot right now. Awesome. Well, folks, we are up against that final break in today's show. When we come back, we're going to get into some of those nuts and bolts of you and your mortgage. Stick around. We will be right back. Are you worried about what's been going on in the markets and how it has affected your portfolio? Maybe you need a financial checkup. If you have questions about the health of your financial future, call FRS Financial Group at 719-500-8700 to schedule your complimentary checkup. And remember to tune into Money Matters presented by FRS Financial Group here on KRDO, Saturday mornings at 9 and Sunday at noon. Products and services offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome back to Money Matters here on KRDO, presented by FRS Financial Group. Andrew Rogers, along with Rick Stevens, Kyle Fisk with the Pinterest Mortgage. You know, Kyle, we're going to talk about the ways to get a mortgage soon, but one thing we want to talk about, there are some changes made, and throughout the show, you've used the term mortgage-backed securities a lot. And again, I'm not a financial expert. I'm just a guy on the radio. But when I hear that, I go back to seeing Christian Bale in a bathtub railing about that and what created the whole (laughs) bubble. So, I mean, you know, what has been changed with that and why is it, you know, not as bad of a term now as what it once was? Right. So mortgage-backed securities, to put it quite simply, are Mm -hmm. taking 10,000 mortgages that were written across the country, bundling them into essentially an investment vehicle like a stock or a mutual fund and and selling that as an investment on the open market. That's what a mortgage-backed security is. Now, back in 2006, 7, and 8, we were bundling really bad paper, really high-risk loans, people that had very little equity in their homes. They didn't have the ability to repay, and so those instruments weren't as, as solid as they are now. And now that the rules have changed and people are far more qualified, they have more equity in their home, their credit scores are higher on average across the board. Now that vehicle is a safer instrument. And so it's the same vehicle. It's just what was inside of it today versus 15 years ago. So it's just going from a Corvair to a modern day safer vehicle. Sure, airbags. 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 Seatbelts. We have seatbelts now and airbags because we have new rules Mm -hmm. around the investment vehicle. Perfect. So yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and folks, that's why we have Andrew on the show, to, to hear about seatbelts and airbags uh, on, the, on the security side of life. Yeah. Um, so, so, Kyle, we're, we're talking about this, and, and actually this does kind of lead into that. 
Yes, in those last 10, 15 years, mortgages have changed in in the types of folks that qualify and and all of the different bells and whistles that go along with things. And and I know you you've talked about it more than once. It's not just, you know, one, two, or three items that go into a, a uh, an interest rate qualification, but there are 26 different pieces in that matrix. But when, when I want to look at the, sort of this overall concept of qualifying for a mortgage, what are a couple of those big pieces that, that folks like the underwriters at Pinterest will look at that, you know, me as the consumer, I need to be aware of on my end? Absolutely. So when I fill out this five-page application, right, the 1003, mm-hmm. as it's called, uh, this loan application, and I'm giving you all of my information, my firstborn child, my blood type, you know, all yeah. of that good stuff. What are you actually looking at, and how do I know if I'm going to get a mortgage or not? Right. Because right? this is not every mm-hmm. Andrew, yeah. don't you, when like, it's kind of scary to apply for a mortgage, and your big question is, well, c- can I qualify? Yeah. And so there's really two things, Andrew, that we're going to look at on every bar. It all falls okay. into one of two buckets. We look at stability and liability. Okay. Everything falls into one of those two. That's literally it. We're looking at your stability as a borrower, and we're looking at your liability, and that liability really goes to something called ATR, ability to repay. Okay. Is this person a good risk? Are they going to make their mortgage payment? Well, what are some of the things I'm going to look at when we do that? Well, on the stability side, we're going to look at a two-year employment history and a two-year residential history. Now, if you've had seven jobs in the last two years, it doesn't mean you can't get a mortgage. You just look a little differently than the person that's had the same job for two years in terms of stability. Mm -hmm. Because if I had the same job for two years, my income's probably been relatively stable, if not increasing. If I've changed jobs seven times, my income may have gone up, down, and even if it's gone up dramatically, do I have a higher consistency that that income is more likely to continue if I've bounced around from job to job? So that's so we look at a two-year employment history to determine your stability. We look at your employment or your two-year residential history, and we say, have you paid your rent for the last two years? Have you paid your existing mortgage for the last two years? Mm-hmm. We're looking at your stability as a borrower. The second bucket is that liability question. And so one thing you'll hear people throw around in the mortgage world is DTI, debt to income ratio. And this is a really important component. And all of these factors apply across the board. Doesn't matter what type of loan you're getting. Am I getting a conventional loan or an FHA loan or a VA loan? Am I getting a conforming loan or a high balance loan? All of these factors are the same factors. We just weight them differently and there are different guidelines that apply for these different factors, but the factors themselves are still the same. So that debt to income ratio, we're going to look at two important numbers. And this is something that a consumer can do on their own. And there's DTI calculators. You can figure this out on your own. We look at your top line income, mm-hmm. right? Gross before taxes deductions. So somebody who makes 120000 a year, just for easy math, because you know I like easy math, that's $10,000 a month of gross income. Now, generally speaking, we aren't going to want to have our monthly liabilities, meaning our minimum monthly payments for all of our debts and obligations, student loans, auto payments, credit cards, et cetera, plus the new mortgage that we're applying for to exceed roughly half of our income. So I need to keep, if I make $10,000 a month, I need to keep all of my other debt payments, including my mortgage, under $5,000 a month. So if I've got $2,000 a month in auto payments, credit card payments, et cetera, I qualify roughly for a $3,000 a month mortgage. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's your debt to income piece. 
Um, the, one of the other things, of course, we look at is your credit score. Your mm-hmm. the almighty FICO. <laughs> now, your credit score is not a good is not a great indicator of your trustworthiness. It doesn't tell me if you're going to pay back the mortgage or not. All it does is measure your interaction with debt. Okay. Now, a lot of people look at their credit score maybe at their bank website or on Credit Karma, and what they're generally looking at is their FICO eight. That's their consumer credit score. If you go to Lowe's to get a refrigerator, that's probably what they're going to look at to determine if you Mm -hmm. can have that refrigerator. In the mortgage world, there's about 40 different ways to pull your credit. And in the mortgage world, there's actually a mortgage score that all three bureaus, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion can pull. Now, again, all credit scores use the same data. How old is your credit? What percentage of your lines are you using, et cetera? How many open lines do you have? Is it revolving debt or installment debt? use the same factors, but our mortgage score weights it differently and weights it more conservatively, which makes sense because you are borrowing the largest amount of money for the longest period Mm -hmm. of time. So your mortgage credit score is going to be lower than your consumer score. So don't be surprised if you say, okay, my my bank website says I'm at a, a 740 credit score, but my mortgage score comes back at 702. That would not be an unusual type of circumstance. So that we pull that mortgage credit score. And again, all we're looking at is your interaction with debt. And so one of the most important things you can do as a consumer is just make sure you're doing a couple of things. One, making payments on time. There's no difference between a mortgage late, a credit card late, an auto payment late. A late payment's a late payment is a late payment. Make your payments on time. Credit scores go back seven to 10 years, and half of your credit score is just history. There's nothing you can do to change that except replace it with new history, and that takes time. So in terms of keeping that credit up, it's an important factor for any financing, including getting a house. Yeah, and what are some of the big misconceptions that people have out there? Because there's a lot of people that think, oh, I'm going to, you know, maybe rush a marriage to try and help qualify better for a house, or I'm going to do XYZ to try and hack the situation to make it better. Are there really any things that can do that, or is it really just a lot of good marketing to try and get people to do other things than what should actually qualify them? No, that's a great question. I think there are definitely some myths out there when it comes to financing. A lot of people think for me to buy a home, I have to have a 20% down payment. You don't have to have a 20% down payment. You can buy a, a you can get an FHA loan for as little mm-hmm. as three and a half percent down. You can get conventional loans as low as three or five percent down. Now, again, I tell folks all the time, there's no such thing as the perfect loan. Yeah. Every loan program and product is going to have advantages and disadvantages. So you might get the advantage of making a lower down payment, but you might have the disadvantage of a slightly higher rate. Or you might get the advantage of a really small down payment, but you might have the disadvantage of having to pay mortgage insurance on that loan because you're not at a certain Mm -hmm. what we call LTV loan to value on that product. And so uh, a great myth would be how much down do I need to have? A great myth is I don't have perfect credit. I probably can't buy a home. You can buy a home on an FHA loan with a credit score as low as 580. Obviously, do your best to keep your credit up, but just because you've got some credit challenges doesn't mean you can't buy a house. Okay. And and on that uh, down payment side, um, I know not not every uh, mortgage company works with uh, the Chaffa loans, but but Chaffa is that that opportunity for folks to to actually utilize a program that helps with a down payment. But on your end, there's a lot of paperwork that goes into that. Colorado Housing Finance Authority, Chaffa. There's also the El Paso County Turnkey Program. These are called DPA or Down Payment Assistance Programs. Um, you know, the short version on it is that, it, like 
like any other loan, there are advantages and disadvantages. An advantage of a Chaffa loan is you might be able to buy a home for as little as $1,000 out of pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could have a really low credit score. And if you have a small enough income, you could qualify for some assistance. And there's a couple of different types of programs. There's grant programs. There's second mortgage silent seconds that borrow your down payment, essentially, to borrow 100% of the value of the home and use that to make the down payment for your uh, first mortgage. At the end of the day, those programs, while they have their place, I tell folks all the time, if that's the only way to buy a home, let's explore it. But if there's any other way to do it, those loans are very inefficient. Their APR or annual percentage rate is much, much higher. They come with a higher interest rate, usually about double the fees. There's some other disadvantages to it as well. And that's why it's really important if you're looking for a mortgage that you are sitting down with a trusted professional and really understanding what's the landscape, what's your unique situation look like, and what's the best loan program for me. And recognize the best loan program for you today may not be the best loan program two years from now, and that's okay. Marry the house, date the rate, You can always move from that, okay, I need to make a really low down payment and get an FHA loan today, and I'm going to refinance in five years to a conventional loan that doesn't have mortgage insurance, Mm -hmm. right? Don't feel like you've got to be in the perfect loan today. Lots of people are getting into homes at numbers that make sense for them in a loan product that makes sense for them. As we evaluate, again, back to the big picture, all we're going to look at is that stability and liability. And just make sure you're working. I mean, I know this is Rick's line. He says it all the time. And as we as we kind of head towards the conclusion of the show today, whether you're working with a financial investor or a mortgage person or your tax person or your insurance person, are you finding somebody that has the heart of the teacher, not the heart of the salesman? Yeah. Somebody who's going to help educate you and answer your questions so that you aren't having to think, I got to come in and be the expert, but someone who will actually guide me and walk me through it and answer my questions in the process. Yeah. And somebody that's really, you know, going to help you with that process and not just steer you towards a situation that's got a better commission rate or something to really kind of help line their quarterly or end of year bonus. That's exactly right, right? You're looking for a lender or a financial advisor for life. You're looking for somebody that, yes, they're looking to be your partner and your coach to guide you through it and really take good care of you. Mm-hmm. Make sure you're in the right product at the right time for that makes the most sense. At the end of the day, I tell my clients all the time, it's not my job to talk you into or talk you out of any particular loan program or product or rate buy down or whatnot. My job is to give you good information and educate you so you make an informed decision that's best for you and your family. Because at the end of the day, Andrew, I don't have to pay that mortgage. You do, mm-hmm. right? And setting you up for financial success, knowing that you're going to marry the house, date the rate, and probably come back to us in a year and get refinanced anyway. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Kyle, if folks do have those questions, if they are exploring all of their different buying possibilities How do they get in touch with you over at Pinterest? Absolutely. Give us a call. Shoot us a text, 719-277-9238, or visit fiskmortgage.com. Click the Get Started Now button, and you can fill out the application online, or give us a call and shoot us a text. We'd love to work with you. Again, fiskmortgage.com. And as always, thanks for having me. Uh, Thanks for being in in here, Kyle. Folks, that is all the time that we have for this week on Money Matters. We will be back again next week. In fact, next week we're actually going to talk about kids and finances. Andrew, are you ready for that? Because that's where we're going next week. My kids can't count, so this will be an interesting conversation next week. Oh, it's going to be. It's going to be fun. Folks, you will want to tune in next week on Money Matters as we are talking about our kids and finances. If you've got that question, if you missed something from today's show, you can always give me a call, 719-500-8700. I can get you Kyle's information if you missed it here. 
folks. We will be back again next week. We will be continuing to talk about your money because your money matters. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Everybody.